Artist and philosopher Dominique Sanson is perhaps most famous in Ibiza for his panel of paintings which depict Ibiza from prehistory until modern times. But his art goes way beyond these, with his unique style depicting many topics which highlight the beauty of the island and its inhabitants, as well as his Sufist beliefs. You can see many examples of his different styles of art by, by visiting dominiquesanson.com. In this interview, Dominique describes his early life in Paris, where he was a student just as the 1968 riots broke out. His life in Ibiza brought him into contact with the hippie culture, which he admires to this day, and opened his mind to a philosophy of humility, openness and love. He says, Several times I have left Ibiza forever, but I'm hooked. I'm an addict. Let's join Dominique at his place on the outskirts of Santillaria. So Dominique, it's lovely to meet you. To introduce you, I, I, I wanted to know how people would, would think of you on the island, so I asked a great friend of yours, Martin Davis, to describe you, and he said that, well, you play the piano well, you're a keen reader in many languages, you have an abiding interest in history, prehistory and philosophy, a keen student of religious history, a highly gifted artist and an ex-hippie to boot. Does that sound accurate? Martin is a very generous friend. <laughs> Basically, I would start as an ex-hippie, but I'm not too sure about that. The rest is more or less uh, exact. I have uh, not a passion for history, no, not official history with the dates and rule names. So that's the history I like. I like prehistory and uh, all these late discoveries, pushing back the existence of uh, hominids and, uh, and 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 man itself, and many other things that are still not accepted. This is what fascinates me, and I like uh, this knowledge to be present in art. Because uh, for me, art is not only expressing emotions or nice colors or beautiful naked women, which I've done in my time. I like it. Mm. I'm too old now. They don't come anymore. <laughs> <coughs> but it's about uh, putting your bit of your knowledge of your experience of life in the painting. So it's it's not only color and harmony. It's you're trying to put something that you cannot say officially. That, that's. Did I answer enough? Some feeling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some 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 belief. Well, we'll come on to your art and your philosophy. I want to explore all that. But could we start off just by I want to find out about your origins, where you came from, where you were born, and about your early life to start off with. Well, I'm French from both parents. They were born in Paris. 
and uh, quite a strict education with the Jesuit for a while, very serious. My parents, my mother was an atomic engineer, father another engineer, so they wanted me to be an engineer, and therefore I became the contrary. Yes, we always try and rebel. <laughs> exactly. And what was and, the Jesuit, uh, the Jes the Jesuit education? That was quite stern and harsh, was it? It was not that bad, really. Thinking back on it, it was not that bad. But anyway, that's changed a lot when I came to Ibiza. I wanted to um, clarify this background to explain why I ended up here and uh, in in these conditions. Of course. So, tell me then a bit about your your early life. Did you grow up in Paris? I grew up in Paris, in uh, not far from Montparnasse, and I went to good colleges thanks to my parents. And I I feel uh, lucky to have been born in one of the capitals of Europe that had a decent culture. I'm proud of being French, but I don't feel nationalistic about it. You know, I, it's an honor to have been born in Paris, like. It would have been to be born in London or in Berlin or Rome or whatever. We're lucky people. One of those great world cities. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about your, your your youth or your growing growing up in Paris. What was that like? My parents were very strict. I don't have very good memories. And they both worked so uh, professionally. I told you my mother was an engineer. So we were brought up by Spanish nannies. And every summer, they would send me to a part of Spain to, you know, spend there three months. Three months of holiday every year. So for me, Paris was a bit the grey cities with the rain, with the pollution, with the cars. And every summer was Spain, sun, life, paradise, freedom. My, uh, uh, you know, experience of Paris is all these grey sides. I got to know uh, Spain very early, very young, because of these circumstances, and uh, uh, that's why I love Spain. That's why I ended up here, slowly but surely. Which which parts of Spain did you used to go to on those summer trips? No, País Vasco, and uh, especially Andalusia. The zone of Granada, beautiful place in those times yeah. when I was young. Many uh, two donkeys uh, towns who became, uh, which became now big cities, and an incredible. The people had lots of uh, humor, a very special, incredible humor. The, 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 the uh, sorry, the Andalus still have it, and an incredible philosophy of life. So I lived, I was born with that contrast of Paris, very strict uh, engineering, um, logical, practical life, and the humorous, poetic, colorful life of Andalusia, especially. So that's, that, that's, that's obviously affected your, your approach to life and your decisions later in life. But before you left Paris, did you did you pursue your artistic training there? 
<coughs> I didn't, sorry, I didn't have the luck to do that because I, my, uh, my graduation coincided with uh, the year 68, which was the re revolution in Paris when the, the students were, you know, uh, fighting the cops on the street. Were you part of that? Yeah, but I was too young to really be one of the important ones. I just probably threw a few stones and, you know, and threw uh, especially what I like to do was to make these paper water bombs. You know, you fold a sheet of paper and you fill it up with water. Right. With water and then you drop it on the people on the street, on the police. There's, I didn't do much more than that, really. Okay. <coughs> but what happened is that... I wanted to do art, I wanted to do the Beaux-Arts in 69 and I uh, took the inscription there, I went to the Beaux-Arts but it was full revolution, everybody was uh, into politics, you had to be either a Trotskyist, Trotskyist or a Maoist or somewhere more central on the left, nobody studied any, anything we used to fry uh, uh, sausages in the main uh, staircases of the so of, uh, Beaux-Arts. Is this one of the, the great art schools in Paris? Yeah, the Beaux-Arts is like the, the art school in, uh -huh. in Paris. Okay. So it was not very serious. Everybody was into politics, and that's when I had also the luck or the bad luck to uh, come for 15 days in Ibiza. And that drastically changed my life, of course. And, and what, what, uh, why did you come here for 15 days? <coughs> because I had a friend who had been here by accident. He, he came to Santolalia and worked in a bar. And he was an artist, a, a serious artist too. He was not a barman. <coughs> anyway, so he, he came here for 15 days and he says, no, he came here to work for the summer. He said, when well, you come for 15 days, stay with me, and, and that's where I ended up here. Yet, so the bazaar, I never studied in the bazaar because of these uh, circumstances. I paid the inscription, I was there for a few months, but I never graduated or anything. It sounds like it was just chaos. I mean, it was completely chaos. You couldn't learn if you wanted to, probably. Well, a couple of friends of mine did it, and... Uh, but they were more patient than me, or more perseverant, or they had a stronger character. And what, what, so what were your impressions of Ibiza that were so compelling? Well, I came to Ibiza in the year 71, beginning of 71. And uh, the, the island was, was stuck in the 17th century. Once you came out of Ibiza city or Santa Olaria, all the roads to San Lorenzo, Santa Getrudis, all these were very narrow roads. 70% of the roads did not exist at all, they were only country ways, and there you met all these uh, payeses and payesas dressed like in the 17th century, in carts drawn by uh, donkeys and mules, and, uh, and if you uh, entered the countryside, you ended up in fincas, where people lived exactly uh, this very refreshing, simple, poor life 
of the Middle Ages. So of course, it was a bit of a shock, you know, coming from Paris, from a, a decent background. And of course, the beaches were empty. There were already quite a few hippies, quite a few naked girls on the beach. That was a part of the attraction too. Yeah. And uh, it was very cheap, of course. My, fir my first house I rented in Santa Laia was for 1,500 euros, uh, sorry, 1500 pesetas. Pesetas, yeah. A month, no water, no electricity. The shower was a, what is it? Yeah, a watering can. A watering can. <laughs> so my, I came here, and when I was in Paris, I used to play music with the group once in a while. I came here, and I, after two weeks, I met them here. One of them had inherited a lot of money. His father died. He's actually the guy from Pernod. You remember Pernod? Pernod Pastis? And they were here with a van full of instruments, and uh, so we, we met in Paris. And he said, "Why don't you come and play some music with with us?" As I said, "Fine." And this is the reason I stayed. And of course, we played in Didi's Cotec. There was only once, only one called uh, Lola's. And between the nature, the historical setting of this wonderful island the music, the beach. When you play music, you have all these girls want to hang on to you. I don't know why. Terrible. <laughs> Must have been and, terrible. And uh, <laughs> uh, I have a weak character. So I uh, stayed here, in Ibiza. And how did your life progress? Well, it was not easy because, no, okay, everything was very cheap in that time, but I was like a real hippie in the sense that I didn't have any financial... Uh, backing, uh, what you know, the people they call hippies nowadays. We find out, and I find out also quite late that most of them were from very rich backgrounds. Uh, they had a, the parents gave them a thousand dollars a month just to stay away from home, and uh, with that they managed to live here and go to India, Goa, etc., etc., and go back. It was quite difficult because number one, you could not find a job. And especially in the art uh, side, which I decide would be the, the best way to survive here, it was very difficult because the Ibisenkos have absolutely no concept of advertisement, publicity, drawings, art. For them, that was completely a superficial nonsense, mm. obviously, you know. But I did manage with the music and I did manage with the uh, uh, art for a while. Mm. At that time, I was not very conscious of all these historical uh, rich, richness of Ibiza. Mm. And uh, because uh, you saw so many ruins and these beautiful stone walls, but you didn't have any knowledge of whether this was a finca uh, built you know, 100 years before or 300 years before or thousands of years before. But there was this incredible feeling of uh, history being present everywhere, especially when you, you, know, you see these beautiful Arab wells. Mm. Uh, you, you can feel something that has been here for a thousand, for two thousand years maybe. You still had the old Norias with the donkeys. 
still functioning. And I saw these olive press that are the same now, but not now, same when I came to the island, as 2,000 years ago, the Romans are the same. I've seen them working, functioning, I've seen the grinders. So suddenly you, you say, wow, where am I? It's, uh, you can feel this, the continuation of the traditions Suddenly, it awakens your something in your DNA, in your genes. It makes you conscious of the fact that you're not living here 50, 70 years, or, but that you are part of a whole um, human evolution, human um, history. Mm. It's it's very enriching. So, did you then you started to get an interest in the history of the island? Gradually. Yes, yes, gradually, gradually. I am not an historian and I will never be. I don't know enough. Eventually, at some point, I decided to do uh, the history of Ibiza in, in paintings, uh, which I thought would take me about three months. And it took me two years because that's when I realized I didn't know anything about history. I had the general knowledge of the Mediterranean, uh, the Arabs, the Berbers, the pirates, the Romans, the uh, Phoenicians, a few ideas, the Greeks, but I really, when it comes down to it, I didn't know anything. So I had to go to the libraries and uh, and start uh, looking for serious uh, serious uh, references. So, so over the years, have you have you lived that that kind of life here through the decades? Or, or has your life, how has your life evolved on the island? Well, I fell right into that hippie vibe, which was wonderful. Uh, sort of sharing, uh, sharing, sharing a friendship, not sharing uh, the women and stuff like that. Some people did it, you know, they all these communes, but that was never really my my thing. But uh, <clears throat> sharing experience and sharing sympathy. What I found, what really struck me here in, in, in when I came to Ibiza and meeting all these people, whether they were Ibisenkos or American, English, Germans, whatever, and you had people from all sides of the world, they came from different social backgrounds. Um, there were some bandits, some artists, some f f famous people, but uh, people cultivated personality. It was not permitted to be boring. <laughs> Nobody permitted you to be boring. If you started telling a boring story, people would just walk away or put you in your, you know, in... Uh, and the most incredible characters ended up here. This is what really fascinated me. Apart from the historical side of Ibiza, physical beauty, the incredible richness of characters that were here. Can, can you tell me about some of the the characters that you've met? Well, I became friends and uh, with uh, Jan Gillem from Deep Purple. But in those times, you could go to a party and meet the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, which I did, actually. Uh, actors, musicians, the most incredible people. Bandits, mm. let's not forget them. Mm -hmm. and uh, And some brilliant artists, too. 
So is this through talking about the 70s? 70s, 80s. Mm. So they, they, you're describing a kind of very rich cultural, international scene here of um, artists, writers, and people on the run. It's a complicated mixture, yes. Uh, it, it was not people who, who resided here constantly, but they did visit here systematically. Ibiza was a permissive uh, place to, you know, to, to uh, spend some time and uh, be yourself away from the fans. That was most of the big uh, music groups ended up here for a long time. Uh, the Rolling Stones. Pink Floyd were here, were they? Pink Floyd were here. So they didn't stay forever, but they did come here because they could be themselves without having, you know, all the fans, you know. And, and were there particular... Were there particular bars that everyone went to where you knew you would meet these interesting characters? <coughs> yes, there was La Tierra in Santolalia, Bar Mariano, the many bars on the port, of course. Mm. Uh, Lola's was uh, like a disco day. And then, of course, uh, Pasha uh, opened up. And in Pasha, you could, everybody ended up in Pasha. I think Pasha was in 76, if I'm not. Mm -hmm. If I'm not wrong, and it became immediately a, a big success. I used to spend every night in Pasha, and if I didn't, I would, uh, would I wouldn't sleep. I would be desperate. What did I miss today? <laughs> and there, there, all these famous people ended up there sooner or later. Mm. And good music. It was disco in those days, I suppose. No, it was not disco. It was more like you had salsa. You had. Uh, Santana, oh, yeah. etc. Okay. But you could dance, you could listen to music, but you could shut up a girl or talk with your friends because the volume was not, uh, you know, something that hurt your brain and made you half imbecile. Uh, so yeah, I met quite a lot of famous people there. Um, I, and I interesting women, beautiful women. I'm not mentioning any names. Yeah. We must protect the innocent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I know... Um, I tell you after. Okay. <laughs> off, off the record. Regular listeners to Mythology know that I've um, taken a real interest in Elmir de Hori, the great forger of art in, in Ibiza, who lived in Ibiza and, and died here. I've done a couple of episodes on him. And um, you knew him, is that right? I know? knew him not directly. I mean, I knew him because we met in the in the, in Ibiza in the in the hotel there. Montesol. Montesol. That's another place where everybody met too was the Montesol. I met him several times, but he, you know he belonged to another world, another generation. What I did do for Elmir, but not for him, I made drawings of Manet, very simple ones, for a famous Spanish uh, painter here who is still around. And then I find out years after that he was giving them to Elmir. He was doing fakes himself. Yeah. And so he made me do these drawings. He paid me, I think he paid me like five, 500 pesetas a drawing or something ridiculous, you know, and then he passed them over to Elmir. And uh, 
Mm. So you were part of Elmir's great forgery network, by the sound of it, without, without, without realising it? No, without not realising at that point, yes. Yeah. I learned that many years after. Right. And, I wonder uh, if any of your pictures are in some gallery somewhere or on someone's wall. They were drawings. They probably are in some private collection somewhere. Yeah. I doubt they would be in the galleries because they were very uh, reduced to size. I remember doing uh, some Modigliani's too, but that was not for Elmir. I don't know what happened. Mm. I, I brought them to gallery as, as, as a fake. I said they're fake. I've done them. And then I went eventually for a holiday to Chile, and uh, instead of spending three months, I ended up spending almost five years. When I came back, I asked for my Modigliani's, and the gallery said, we never saw ever any Modigliani. Okay. So I don't know where they are. I think it sounds like there was, there was, a, it was a, big, a big forgery yeah. scene going on at that time. In many fields. In many fields, yeah. in many fields, uh, Martin would tell you about forgeries of other people. Probably, mm. he must have told you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big thing. And, uh, yeah, just, just to finish your story, off your history in Ibiza. What, what did you do from the eighties onwards after they passed? After the eighties, I started making money seriously with paintings. When I say seriously, I didn't, far from being a millionaire, of course, but it was uh, that middle class suddenly started buying paintings because they just liked it, which is not the case nowadays. Nowadays, people buy paintings, you know why? Because uh, the curator in London says you have to buy this one, not this one, etc. And in those times, there was a new uh, uh, this uh, middle class, and just people would walk in the studio and say, well, I like that, I like and it was a successful time for many artists here that lasted 10, 15 years, I would say. From the 80s until 2015, 2010. And then, boom, collapse. Why, why did it collapse? Because uh, suddenly uh, it was the collapse of, uh, of the middle class that had enough money to buy something they really liked for their pleasure. And because nowadays the people who have money only buy something that the curator will tell uh, them to buy, because it's an investment. They don't buy for pleasure, they buy it for an investment. And now more than ever, it's getting worse by the, by the year. Oh, well, I, I mean, I haven't noticed that. I, I, I've bought paintings for pleasure myself, but then I'm not a serious collector of art. <coughs> You're, you're talking about the people who are buying it as an yeah. investment. Yeah, 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 yeah. But now people will not buy a, a painting for two, three thousand euros like that. They, they would prefer to buy something for twenty or twenty-five or fifty, or more. But if it's got, if it's an investment, yeah. and the people who could afford to pay two, three thousand euros don't have that money anymore. They have to pay the electricity the school of the children and that's it so you so your your income from painting declined after that period declined and i started doing uh, you know uh, uh, deep, uh, projects developments drawings 
Yeah. For many years, I worked for uh, Terra Vita, yeah. and I did uh, projects for all kinds of famous people here, big properties. And uh, that was a very successful time because it gave when you, you if you want to you know, ask a presupuesto, uh, uh, how you say, uh, an estimate mm. of two hundred thousand euros for a garden, you have to give something a bit more artistic. Not only, not only a, a cold presentation on a computer and some drawings from the top. Uh, you have to make them feel how their garden is going to be, how the landscape around their house is going to be. And so there's a little artistic touch is very important. Another thing that has been replaced now by 3Ds, of course. People prefer to have... Uh, you know, uh, 3Ds uh, put it on their head, and they can they can visit the garden in their head. Yeah. Nowadays, it's always. But it was a glorious period for a long time. Mm. This I did for about 15, 20 years. Mm. Still do a few. Yeah. Are you, are you carrying on now with the art? Uh, do you have other projects? I am not a very brilliant artist. I am, a, you know, middle mediocre artist I would say but I had a couple of good ideas in my life different ideas one was when I did this history of Ibiza which was the first time maybe apart from the bio tapestry you know, that you have the telling a story on paintings uh, it was not it had never been done here so I have these projects here which I tried to sell in, these, in, in, in the times to the authority, and it was a big disaster because basically, you know how the politicians are anyway, they don't like to pay any money. Mm. They like to uh, receive it, but not you. Yeah. And uh, there was this also this very political Catalan side. The people didn't understand the fact that a, a f bloody foreigner, you know, would come and paint the issue of Ibiza. How yeah. are you there? You know? yeah. Yeah. Even though you know the, the specialists of Napoleon's are Spanish or or English, or the specialists of the, the Roman Empire are American. And uh, no, but you know, the, for them, you know, this how come a bloody French come and paint this issue of Ibiza? And then I have this other big project, and what I'm dedicating to today is to actually sell them because and number one I'm not young anymore and number two nowadays you have to spend 20% of your time painting and 80% putting it on the market marketing yeah. and it's actually happening I'm very happy about the future solution for these two projects so that's what I do now I still do some paintings I just did some uh, aquarelles. I do some uh, sketching of old fincas. I love these old fincas that have not been remo remodelated, mm. uh, renovated, and um, there's quite a f few still. They're disappearing very fast. Mm. They're bought by uh, people with lots of money who uh, destroy the soul and they change them in a, in a dental clinic in a in, in couple of weeks. Yeah. So I'm doing quite a lot of drawings for the, at the moment of old fincas. I'll show you some. Here. If you follow Dominique on um, Instagram, Dominique Samson, you can see pictures of you 
and doing some drawings quite recently, I think, in in the field. <laughs> Beautiful drawings of of, uh, of ruined thinkers. Yeah, uh, this uh, man has a big decoration shop. Asked me to do that as a curiosity, and then. I loved it. He asked me if I had old sketches, and I realized I didn't have that many, really. So that's why I started with uh, Maria and my wife. We go every Sunday. We go to uh, these old fincas. I ask the, uh, the owners if they don't mind me drawing, which is quite complicated because sometimes nowadays they are uh, very annoyed because the tourists would just walk into their fincas, just like, you know, they are in a museum or something. Okay. Or in a film, in a medieval film. Mm. But I have still have quite a few Ibisenko friends and connections, so I, 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 I love it. I love it. It's a big pleasure. Quick drawing, very rewarding. Mm. Well, before we talk about your art in a bit more detail, I'd like to talk about your philosophy of life because. I had a look on your website when I was preparing for this interview and you describe a, a secret door connecting us with other worlds and with God, which we can describe as love. Uh, and you, you, you say how you can find this access to this door. Um, some people do it through using psychedelic drugs or mystical enlightenment. But how would you describe your philosophy? Well, it's a gathering of uh, quite a few different uh, uh, elements, of course. When I came to the island, I was lucky enough to meet some uh, famous people. You know, Nina and Frederick, for example, the, remember the singers? And they were into Sufism. Sufism, actually, their family was promoting the books of a certain guy called Nayat Khan. Anyway, so I came straight from Paris here, being straight, unlimited. I met them by accident. We played some music and they said, well, basically they made me understand I was playing what I had rehearsed, but I was not creative in my... I was not opening, I was not listening to the other musician. So basically I got fascinated by all this philosophy that has nothing to do with uh, scholarship, but it has to do with being open, listening to the other people, and basically, yeah, Sufism, you know, you check it out. It's the Gnostic side of Islam, it's like Buddhism. And I was lucky enough when I was young to have access to that. That was very enriching. So that made me read all these fantastic books about uh, philosophy, history, and at the same time, in, I, I, I remember reading books from McKenna, who is the guy who says that basically uh, uh, the hominids uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago used to roam the, the earth and then they started eating some mushrooms and some funny things happened to them, you know, they started seeing uh, colors. And, mm -hmm. and his theory is that the Evolution started in the hominid because he had this special uh, relationship with the mushrooms. <coughs> and that uh, later uh, shamanism uh, developed also with the, you know, the, uh, psilocybin, 
ayahuasca and many other things and this is the motor of evolution of human of humans mm. because it gives you a vision not only of the present but of a constant present past and future and this is why the shamans came down from their experiences and they could communicate this to the tribe and say outside to make a long story short I started going into this domain. Your attitude in life, when you start researching all these things, if you try to understand the past, you have to do it with love. If you want to understand a culture, whether it's the Indians or the Arabs or the Tibetans or, or, or South Americans or Africans, whatever, you have to have this open, humble attitude. So the beginning of knowledge really starts with humility and openness and love. I don't know if I'm explaining yeah, myself. Lovely, yeah. So all this goes into the art. It goes into your study of uh, history because history, you know, we know very well that history is manipulated. So you have to reread history, but not exactly the way they see it. You have to read between the lines and put yourself in the position much more deeply uh, into uh, the difference of culture and the philosophy of the people at that time. And it, that's what opens the world, really. It's an attitude towards life. It's an attitude towards life. And nowadays we're understanding that we have to be, to, to love Gaia, love the planet. And uh, But it's all this should be, it should be obvious, actually, that the first condition is to be open to circumstances, open to emotions, open to meeting with other people, open to openness, openness, love. That's why um, in this text I said love of life, uh, love of human beings, love of the planet, etc. And, and would you say that, that that through love, through love, you can find enlightenment, or you can, or consciousness? I would say love is not, it's a condition, it's a basic condition, but it, it's not because you have, that uh, it's not sufficient either, of course. There, um, there's many other conditions for enlightenment. Number one, experience. And as they say, to uh, experience uh, the paradise, you have to uh, experience uh, hell before. Now, the artist's uh, life is not easy. You have to go through all kinds of rejections and uh, hardships. That's a certain way of maybe reaching some kind of, uh, of uh, enlightenment because you uh, go through really hard times. But you could go through hard times being a soldier or being a, a workman. Being a, you have to go through hell to find paradise, but you have to always have this constant attitude of life, generosity, try to understand, no judgment. Okay, I'm getting there, but I still miss a few things. <laughs> no, so like, it's, um, is, is love like the driving force for, for life? See, some people think that, um, that, that you could call God love, or that love is the, the energy that that, that, that <coughs> keeps the world going. That is the essential. Yeah, but I, I mentioned the, the the love of the of the Gnostics. Yeah. That God is love. It's God is the is 
the love of all the esoteric traditions, because uh, what is, love is is everything. Oh, sorry. Love is difficult. Uh, sorry, God is everything. It starts with the chair here, with the carpet, with the house, with the planets, with the. It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. Not now. It's the whole thing, from the beginning to end. It's difficult. It's unf unfathomable. It's, we don't want to explain anything. It's completely beyond our reach. But for all this esoteric tradition, God is that absolute consciousness. Absolute consciousness. This is love. And nowadays, with the you know the quantum theories and all that, they realize that actually. Uh, uh, consciousness started from the very beginning, from the Big Bang or whatever the Big Bang or before. So consciousness has been there all the time. I didn't invent that. So that consciousness is love. There's no God, no good, no bad. It's just consciousness. You have to try to develop your consciousness as, as much as possible to try to uh, sit back and uh, and enjoy enjoy consciousness. Do you explain this? It's a really uh, beautiful, really simple, but really beautiful, powerful philosophy, I think. Well, it's better not to complicate your life too much. What I remember from these, uh, these uh, Sufis, for example, for example, don't lie to yourself. Don't lie and don't lie to yourself. I was lucky to learn that when, you were, uh, when I was young. And really, why don't you not lie? You don't lie not because it's immoral, no, because it's a complication. It's a complication because then you have to lie to cover your lies and then you realize how stupid it is to lie and you hurt people, you hurt yourself and you have to base your whole attitude in life against being sincere. You have to say the truth without hurting people but you have to, especially if you have to be sincere with yourself in the realization of your defects, your, you know, your lack of intelligence or your lack of understanding and this and that. And then this philosophy of sit back and enjoy and not judge, observe, which is the base of Buddhism, the base of Sufis, the base of Gnosticism, of all the Christian, uh, all the Eastern philosophy, is actually very, very simple. And it's, uh, I consider it's the secret to happiness. And people say, why? What is the secret uh, to happiness? What do I have to do? I get all this money and I'm not happy and look what happens in the world and this, uh, you know what? You, you said it yourself, simplicity, no complication. You save a lot of energy, a lot of time, better for your health. Less stress. Less stress. Well, I think that's finally I'd like to talk about your art in, in a bit more detail. Um, you're famous, as, as you were talking, mentioned before, for this series of canvases, 20 of them, which depict the history of, of Ibiza. But also you paint the most beautiful Ibiza landscapes, animals, villas, <coughs> garden design that you mentioned. How would you link your philosophy with, with your art? Well, uh, you know, when I was young, 
you uh, enjoy the, the, the aesthetic side of life more in a very different way. You participate in it. Uh, I used to paint lots of beautiful girls because because there were a lot of beautiful girls, and uh, and there were these beautiful landscapes because you didn't have the roads, you didn't have all these buildings everywhere, so you just went for a walk or went for a party, came back three, four days after, in the meantime you walked in the landscape and uh, everywhere you looked was a lot of beauty. So I didn't complicate myself very much in those times, I just used to paint sometimes what, uh, what I saw. Then of course I started putting conscious, this conscious philosophy in it, as you say, to make it a bit more surrealistic, to use a girl, a nice woman, or a landscape, but to introduce other elements, uh, esoteric um, little secrets like Da Vinci likes to do, put sacred, uh, secret dimensions and stuff like that. Because number one, I was interested in these kind of subjects, and number two, it does bring, people like to discover, secret things in painting. They don't necessarily understand it, but they like the fact that there is some another dimension behind. It's very important. Then you don't have a landscape anymore, you don't have a beautiful woman lying down, you have something that was uh, uh, thought by the artist, something that makes you think that you might discover maybe two years after you bought the painting, maybe three years after, maybe never, but people like that. They like to feel there is another dimension, mysterious. So I started on that, uh, uh, in that field, and at the same time learning, or trying to learn as much as I could, so uh, I started enriching my paintings with this kind of uh, philosophy. And what about, the, do, you, do you choose a particular colour? I've noticed a lot of your paintings do have a particularly like, warm tone to them. Uh, I like warm colours, maybe too much actually, many people have told me that. Maybe, especially nowadays, people like more uh, toned down uh, colours, and even, even lack of colours. At the beginning I was fascinated by the range of of colors you could see in any uh, uh, sunset in Ibiza in October, or, or, or incredible. You know, the sky was, if you look right over the horizon, it was slightly yellow, and then it became slightly pink, and then slightly purple, and then slightly blue, and then the colors of the incredible richness of the green see in the trees. Uh, you've seen that, no? I just see some green right out the door here. And uh, so it, it's, it, you have to learn, you have to learn how to express these different of colors. Uh, probably if I'd gone to uh, Les Beaux-Arts, I would have learned, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the opposites of purple is orange and the opposite of blue is yellow, etc. Et Red is green, and, but uh, so I learned it here on the, in the field. And I, I, I know uh, you've got a section on women on your website, and there's a, couple, a lot of pictures of beautiful women, but a couple of them struck me. One of them is a painting of Ibiza, 
as a as as, as a as a woman sort of lay, laying down with Formentera next to her. And <coughs> another one there's a scene of um, with a, with a lot of beautiful women, and then they're being looked at by a man. And you can see the man's feet. So with, with the, is this is this something that you experienced, or, or is it your, your, imagina- your imagination? A bit of both. <laughs> No, you have the famous Last Supper, so I, this painting is called uh, The First Breakfast. Ah, okay. You know, so yeah, the painter is there or wherever, in his bed, and uh, in the morning, all these ladies bring him his, you know, a bit of caviar here, a bit of champagne. And, well, I had a bit of uh, experience, but not, uh, not that many ladies at the time. I would be dead by now. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing. The other one is, is, the, is the esoteric side in the painting. The lady is Isis, or nowadays everybody mentions Tanit, Tanit, Tanit. People are going back nowadays to all this Tanit uh, obsession and bass, and, uh, and you know, I, I like it, it's just nice. So for me, this lady there is Isis or Tanit, and she, I remember she put her finger in front of her lips, uh, making the sign of silence because, and like Isis, she leaves a bit of a veil. Uh, showing a beautiful tit. But Isis, when she leaves her veil, is to, so you can glimpse some secrets of the old tradition. No? So it's all symbolic. It's, uh, it's Ibiza with the old tradition, going back to Isis. Uh, you know, of course, the Phoenicians were here. They did bring all these uh, uh, traditions with them. And uh, I don't know, up to which point, I don't know what's left of that, but I like this to think that Ibiza followed at some part of history this kind of uh, philosophy. Ice is there, she also puts her hand and there's a fire in the countryside on the island of Ibiza. And the year after was the first fire ever in Ibiza. Bit of a coincidence, I didn't do it. But until then, nobody heard of a fire, a forest fire here. They were not, people, they were not enough population living in uh, in the countryside, and the Bisengos were, of course, are very, very conscious. Not enough foreigners to drive around with throwing their cigarettes or something like that. Mm. Well, is there any, anything you'd like to say finally about, about Ibiza now? Do you still love the place as much as you did? What are your feelings? I've several times I've left Ibiza forever. Once I went to South America and after five years I could not stand it anymore. I went to Costa Rica with uh, my wife. A couple of times I went to other places forever. I always come back. Reason is this incredible mixture of people from all nationalities and, and very reaching. It's not exactly the same now. I think some of that is lost. Uh, People are obsessed with the purchase of money now, which is not exactly my philosophy. And I don't like the modern Ibiza because it's overbuilt. It's overbuilt and you cannot walk around anymore in the countryside. Everything has become private properties. All the beautiful places you used to go and just visit around the coast and everywhere are now private. 
So I'm not happy. I'm not happy with the highways. I'm not happy with. But at the same time, <laughs> the moment you go out of the island and you end up in Barcelona or France or London or whatever, you realize that it's it's much worse out there, and we're still incredibly lucky. The island is still very beautiful in spite of all the construction. It's got many hidden corners you can still see. Uh, there's a bunch of boring people who came, but there still are some amazing characters worth uh, getting to know. So I still love Ibiza and Ibiza. Ibiza is Ibiza, end of story. And I'm, you know, I'm hooked. I'm an addict. <laughs> well, I wanted to explore the, the hippies in a bit more depth. Because you wrote to me and you said hippies are not just dope-smoking, long-haired, colourfully dressed freaks with beads, but they're actually incredible trailblazers and adventurers and they, they've contributed something positive to culture in Ibiza. So let's talk about hippie culture first and then we can talk about Ibiza. How, how would you describe hippie culture? Can, can you sum it up? I would say for me, the base of the hippie culture is uh, um, the consciousness of the fact that we are world citizens. People suddenly start realizing that uh, nationalities and uh, the political games they've been uh, put in our heads suddenly don't, don't make any sense. They have a sense that they belong to the rest of the world, the fact that they travel all around makes them know other cultures and they find out that most of the people are actually very friendly when you start traveling. And the humble people are the ones who are the most generous. So this is for me, I think the base of the, of the hippie culture is this uh, feeling of belonging to be a world citizen. Not English, not French, not Belgium, not Germany an acceptance of other people's cultures, languages, differences, and um, focus on sympathy, empathy, friendship, and love. This, for me, is the hippie culture more than... Uh, of course, it goes with the smoking big joints and everything because it helps you enhance your consciousness. Where was it born then? Like I've, I've read it was born in San Francisco, it was born in the 1960s. Got any idea when it first, this, this, this new wave came about? I think you're right. I think it came in San Francisco, in California. Uh, why, I don't know. I don't want to talk about something I don't know. Sure. I don't know that it expanded to Europe eventually and that it came to Ibiza the place we are now because of uh, the famous film Moore. It's about a couple that ends up, she's American and he's German, end up in Ibiza and they get lost in the, in the hedonic scene and drugs and he eventually dies, he's buried up in Santa Lalia. <clears throat> and this film, I forget the name of the guy, uh, was seen all over Europe. It was a very successful film and that's when I think a lot of young people started traveling here, having already in mind all these, you know, uh, philosophies from uh, 
from California and from England too, Jesus, because I think he went from California to England. Now the streets of London were quite funny in those times, before, before, before Ibiza. Yeah. <laughs> I just wondered why, why Ibiza, I mean, obviously the film attracted them here, but then they stayed, they, it became part of the hippie network. So it must have been really suitable for their lifestyle. Well, why, why was that? The image they gave in the film was of a, a, a you know, place of, uh, where you could easily uh, have free relationships and uh, find drugs and be peaceful in the country. But I think most of the people who came following this, this film were actually amazed by the beauty of the island. And uh, I mean, it, it was not even reflected in the film, the beauty of the island. It was a fascinating place back in, stuck in the 17th century. So I think many people started really coming here, discovering the place. And from there, they and went traveling to other places. And Ibiza became one of the, uh, how you say, etapes, one of the steps uh, of international uh, traveling for hippies. And when, when we're talking about hippies, you know, you, you think of uh, you know, long people with long hair and beads and so on, but would you expand it beyond that to, it's just people with that particular outlook on life? Well, it's, yeah, the an outlook on life, um, that sense of uh, internationality, a uh, bubble of hope because a sincere desire to expand your own mind, your own spirituality, I would say, your understanding of the world and, and other people, and bring something to the evolution of society. People, of course, they smoked dope and they took drugs, but it enhanced their brain, and they thought, you know, they could bring, uh, apply that to uh, many um, parts of of uh, the cult of culture. Uh, for example, arts was the first thing. You know, music and visual uh, arts were influenced by uh, the LSD and that kind of philosophy. But also, we found out after, you know, that uh, LSD influenced also sciences. So for me, this is this is the uh, hippie culture. It's not only the long hair. No, it had a philo philosophical uh, base structure, opening, hope, and you know, try to make the other people uh, participate and enjoy of this uh, new sense of freedom and new sense of uh, you know other dimensions. Does uh, it make sense? Yeah, of course. And and I want to I want to to understand just how important it was in Ibiza. You know how. I don't, I've got no idea how many hippies lived here, where, where they lived, were they just a small pocket of society here or were they all over the island? Can you describe how they lived here? Okay, so why did they end up in Ibiza? We talked about it because of that film. I think it became one of the most important spots in their, you know, here, uh, Goa, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Hawaii and so forth because of the beauty of the island and the fact that it was right in Europe, I mean, really close by. You don't have to, to, to travel 10,000 kilometers to, to, to be in a wonderful place. They were not a big uh, part of the population in that time, but they were the most visible, that's for sure. 
because there were not many uh, foreigners here traveling at that time. They were the straight ones that were already in San Antonio and in Ibiza town. And the, the proportion of, of, of foreigners to Ibisencos was, was still very, very small, no? I would say maybe 10 percent. Uh, yeah, so out of this 10 percent, you had what? Maybe 40 percent hippies, but these hippies lived here. Many stayed all year round. And they were visible because of the way they dressed and the way they behaved. And there were some quite amazing characters among them, like really amazing characters. And did, did, they, did they live in the countryside mainly, in, in rented thinkers? Yes, because like that they could, make, uh, they could celebrate their parties and do what they want. And also because the tendency of the Ibisenkos at the time was to Good move to the city. Mm. People who started selling houses this is another subject, or rented house. Uh, they wanted to buy a place in in Ibiza, a little apartment. So it, they rented their houses in the country, or they even sold their houses in the country to buy a place in Ibiza. And therefore, uh, there was this tendency: Ibiza moving to town and renting all their houses in the country at a very reasonable price. And did they live, um, I mean, there are certain places that I know of, like Beniras, Atlantis. Can you, can you pinpoint any particularly important places? Well, San Carlos was the main thing, I would say. Right. San Carlos, uh, for the, as, as, as far as hippies are concerned, and then uh, San Juan, Santa Gertrudis, not the west of the island. There were no. Uh, there were some hippies everywhere, of course, but the north and northeast of the island were the centers of the hippie life. Number one, San Vicente also, because number one, you didn't have really big roads. It, it, you were really isolated, and uh, and as far as I'm concerned, it's probably the most beautiful uh, earth landscape of Ibiza. And would you would you describe your, yourself as a hippie when you when you arrived here? Did you, did you become part of that movement? No, I didn't. Uh, I don't know if I'm a hippie. I don't know if I ever became a hippie. But anyway, I was not a hippie. But uh, you know, I became part of this culture, and so uh, does it mean I became a hippie? Were the hippies conscious that they were hippies? <laughs> I'm not too sure about that. It was just happening, and it was marvelous. And so uh, I uh, dove right into it. Yeah. So what? So there was a lot of parties and um, sort of art going on, create creativity. Lots of parties with uh, live music. Uh, no DJs, of course, just uh, bongos and guitars and a lot of singing. And curiously all this hippie music that was totally improvised created a style that is now uh, everywhere present in the modern music. Uh, what sort of influences, like the sitar? 
the sitar, yes, but basically the drums and the singing with not not uh, especially necessarily co coherent singing, not with words, but more like chanting, chanting, uh, repeating uh, sentences, and uh, you know more. Af not even African, I would say, further back in time, uh, from the prehistoric times, from the cave times. The fire, dancing around the fire in circles, the drums, and uh, and this chanting. Yeah, we're going back to the shamanic times. So you might you might say that that has really um, come through the ages, and as, as you say, it's influenced like modern dance music. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in it. There's a lot of that in it now, and uh, in Ibiza now, there's all these movements of. Uh, going back to, you know, sh shamanic liberation and so forth. So forth, where they do exactly that. They dance around the fire in circles and they do this, this very uh, instinctive chanting that the hippies bought for the first time. I never heard that before everywhere in the world. Mm. But that is important, isn't it? Because it's to this day. Yeah something that they've left with us yeah uh, so yes lots of parties uh, parties yes they did smoke a lot of uh, funny things and uh, took some acid and stuff like that there was a lot of uh, activities in the bushes that's for sure but uh, people had a generally a, a nice time mm. of course there were many excesses uh, some overdoses of course people who fell down the cliff and, uh, but it's bound to happen anywhere, in any culture or even profession, I would say. Do, do you want to pick out any of the characters? Can you remember any of the particularly vivid characters that um, from those days? Do you want to mention Ooh. any of them? Well, there were some amazing characters, yes, and uh, there's so many. I remember because in those times, the people who actually stayed in Ibiza had to have some kind of degree of personality. People did not tolerate uh, mediocrity or boredom in a way. It wasn't an open uh, uh, policy, mm. but. It ended up with an accumulation with, of amazing characters. And I don't want to mention too many, too many names. Mm. There was, uh, I don't know if we ever mentioned the fact actually that the hippies also got mixed up very early with uh, Osho. Because all that part of San Juan, the north of San Juan, all the hippies were sannyasi, most of them. One of them was uh, Orange Tom, famous. Uh, David Bushman, and uh, amazing in the way they were and behaved. Was this was this pe the people that wear orange? Yeah, right. And they followed Osho, who's a yeah. who travelled to America, based in America. Yes, Osho had his uh, ashram in uh, was it Pune, mm. and who was an amazing guy. Actually, he was. <clears throat> I've seen a film uh, not so long about him that uh, only mentioned his travel to America and the fact that he, they thought he was a scammer and stuff. Uh, they didn't even bother to go into his philosophy. This guy had studied all the uh, 
Buddhist texts and Sufi texts, and he had an amazing, an amazing culture on religion and philosophy. And he ended up taking a bit too much uh, acid, and that's one another story. But he was an amazing guy. So most of the people in Ibiza who lived in San Juan were sannyasin. They all dressed in orange. The Butanos, the Ibisen could call them. Those <laughs> <laughs> <was> Butanos. <laughs> you, you described the culture. And and was one question, how how did they make a living? <clears throat> At that time I didn't realize it. Many of them actually had money. This is a part that we forget. A kind of money that would maybe be a thousand dollars a month that the family in the States or England or Germany would uh, uh, give to them and uh, ask, you know, please keep away. Go everywhere in the world you want, but please just get out of here. <laughs> but most of the people I knew, actually, I found out after years, they had money. They had that income from their parents or they had inherited some money. I've seen hippies in Santa Olalia once in the bank. That I used to meet him on the street, some Germans. You would have given them a piece of bread you know, on the street. They looked like, wow. In the last uh, moments. moments. <laughs> and uh, once I overheard the conversation in the bank in Santa Olalia, and they were there, and they were talking about millions. <laughs> millions of pesetas, okay, but millions that they were to go to move to India and this and I thought, wow. It took me a while to realize that. So there were those who had money and they were quite it was a big proportion actually of hippies. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, there were those who had to invent uh, some kind of uh, uh, survival strategy, so they did a bit of uh, moving hash and or grass or stuff like that from one border to the other. That is definitely a fact. Uh, because there was no job in Ibiza at the time. Mm. I mean, you know, no, nobody would have given a, a hippie a, a job anyway, but but there, was, there were no jobs. When I came here, I had to survive because I was not rich. I didn't have my $1,000 a month from my parents. Very pity, a pity. <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> what a shame. I was a, a painter, so I, I did survive doing uh, for a while uh, signs for restaurants and and uh, posters for uh, you know businesses and so. And uh, it was very hard to get paid because the Bisengos did not understand the concept of publicity. Mm. I mean, you know, actually. You just make me a drawing for my restaurant. You expect me to, to pay you, you know, that, come on, I'll give you a meal or something. It was impossible to work here. So these people, many were moving things from one country to the other, where it was a bit of hash back to Europe, or they started importing things from India and other places, or Tibet, and to, for the first uh, hippie market. That, as far as I'm concerned, were a creation in, of Ibiza. Mm. I would guarantee that, of course, but I think the first two hippie markets were one in Escana, were done by this guy that gave the, you know, I lent you the book, Robin, Robin Brown, he's right. the one who started that in Escana. 
and uh, he did that in uh, Club Punta Rabi. He was evicted, of course, today, two years after because he was not a businessman and he, you know, he ended up in, 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 in winter. He would go back to India by the time he realized you know, he had been evicted. But he's the one who started this hippie market. Before Las Dalias. Before Las Dalias. Las Dalias came after. They saw a potential in that. Juanito saw. He was he's a good businessman, this Juanito. He saw a potential and he started the hippie market in Las Dalias. And then this, it became a very big uh, business over the years. So many hippies lived of that, and I think it keeps on going to this day, no? Mm. And were, were there many of them growing their own food, living in, a, in, a, in communes, being self-sufficient? I don't think anybody grew anything because they didn't want to uh, dig the ground. Yeah. It was too hard, but they did live in communes for sure. Some of them were successful for a while, mm. but of course, I, that's another discussion. Our communes really, it's not an easy subject. No, I'm not aware of many successful ones. Exactly. <laughs> the, as far as I'm concerned, they were all disaster after you know, They worked for one month, two months, three months, maybe. Yeah. Maybe a year, and then they become either extreme or... Well, you might get one or two people that want to work hard, but some, some don't. Yeah. What, what has happened to all these hippies over the years? Where, where are they now? What's happened to the population, of, to the well, movement? We have to realise now it's 50 years after, so actually quite a few are, are dead. Dead because uh, a few of them, you know, overdosed. Uh, some abused drugs and ended up uh, in a form of uh, lunacy or other. But maybe are dead because of generational, uh, generational, uh, old age, old age. Uh, yeah. uh, some went back to their countries, but very few, I think, uh, I don't know, I think they all died out. That's the way do, I see it. You, know? you do hear, like, I'm, I'm aware of, in recent times, since I've lived on the island, where you get a generational change with the Ibithenkos, the, the old lady who owns the Finca dies, and the, yeah. the, the family want to double, triple, quadruple the rent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then some of those hippies now have been leaving in the last few years, forced, forced to leave. Yes, there is the age, and then there is the price. You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, you know, the price here are completely surrealistic, so you, it's difficult to live a hippie life with uh, if you have to fork out uh, two thousand euros for rent uh, at the end of the month, so so do you think Ibithan that the hippie culture is still alive here in Ibiza or is it dying out? How is it changing? As far as I'm concerned, it's, uh, it's gone. It's gone. I mean, there is there are some movements now, you know, new age and uh, it is similar in some way, but in in. There's basic differences. One is uh, the money uh, element. In uh, the hippie times, they did have their money, but everybody, uh, sorry, nobody ever talked about this uh, the money, whether you were rich or poor. Now these new ages is, are flashing their money, they're flashing their cars, they're flashing their relationship with other people, influential people. And uh, 
there is uh, that on one side. Uh, humility is gone. And uh, I don't know, there's a cultivation there of pride and some arrogance. And, uh, hmm. Today, this new age is, is very mixed up in my head with uh, pseudo-Germanism and this multiplication of coaches, spiritual coaches and stuff like that. So they do look, look like hippies, they got long hair, they they smoke uh, dough for sure and take other kinds of uh, uh, drugs, especially ayahuasca and stuff like that. But somehow it's mixed up with a money dimension and an elite dimension that did not exist in the hippie times. That makes the big difference. In uh, the hippie times, you there was no elite around. You know, the most humble guy could be the, the, the king of the, of the ceremony. So it was of its time, but I, I, I imagine you're happy that you lived through that time and you've it's, it, you've experienced it and been part of it. I'm very happy I did, and I consider myself very lucky. Uh, it was not, it was bound not to last for long like everything else in the world. Uh, it's gone, it's gone. Now there's other things, and uh, probably some of them are influential enough to change the, the destiny of the, of the world. Uh, but for me, it was a, 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 I see it as a very important step in humanity. Uh, after the war, after... You know, the concept of enlarging your consciousness and the, and the consciousness of the others is still around. Mm. I'm glad I was uh, lucky enough to live those times, wonderful times. And may, maybe we have to end on a on a hopeful note that you know, in, in this time of war and conflict, that some of that hippie culture can return, or some of those beliefs can have a positive effect. Yes. Uh, well, let's hope. Let's hope and. Uh, I mean, the roots are still there, and you can try to kill them with pesticides and everything you want, atomic energy, but they, I'm sure they, they sprout again. <laughs> can I add something? Of course. You know about the trailblazing, I mean, when, I mean when, you have to read these two books, you know. Uh, this guy who you know, drove whizzes from uh, England all the way to to India with his family and just amazing. How did they travel uh, without, without any money, these people? Well, he was moving, uh, you know, went to Afghanistan and at some door, but he actually went to Lebanon before and took it from Lebanon to Afghanistan. Afghanistan, they were amazed. They said, how are you going to bring dope to our country? Because in Afghanistan, in those times, you cross the border and the official would give you a, a piece of hash immediately. <laughs> it was not... But there was also this, I know, for example, this French guy in the hippie times, he, he found a job offer in Paris to go and paint in Libya for a month. He had to go and paint. So, but he had to be professional and he, and he never painted in his life. He never painted a wall, you know. He, he could only paint with the bucket, basically. So anyway, he, you know, he applied and he went to Libya and he started painting and after a few days they found out he could not, he didn't know how to paint. And the war started uh, with Gaddafi and so forth. So they closed the borders and they, 
eventually, you know, they ejected all the foreigners, and this guy decided to go around Africa. He had no, well, they paid him some money, but it wasn't much money. He had no car, nothing, and he started hitchhiking from Libya. He went to Eastern Africa, all the way down to South Africa. He ended up coming back the other way through Nigeria, Niger, Senegal, and all these places with no money. I knew a Spanish guy from Andalusia. The Andalusians don't, don't even speak Spanish properly, you know. They figure like this, you know. The, or, 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 or. This guy, he, he had a guitar. I met him in, 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 in Ibiza. He used to play in some little clubs and bars. And uh, he saw these hippie girls and he said, wow, this is amazing, where are you going? going. He hitchhiked all the way to India and he ended up in China in those times, 50 years ago, to enter China. He went to Tibet and then from there to China and he came back. And those, in those times, entering China was uh, exceptional. And I said to him, but how did you uh, communicate? Because not only you couldn't speak any English or not even Spanish. I said, you don't even speak proper Spanish. How do you communicate? And he, he said, but my guitar, he smile. <laughs> and always, I'm telling jokes. He said, you tell jokes in, in a language they don't understand, but they see your face and they all laugh. <laughs> Everybody's happy. So he ended up, can you imagine that? I mean, this is for me, trailblazers. And that's what the hippie times brought, the fact that before that, only people with money could travel. Or then you had the ones, the except the few who could go to the Costa Brava or to the La Côte d'Azur in France, but suddenly, very humble families thought, why not, you know, we can, you know, we just have to hitchhike. By trailblazing you mean that they were they, they were they were on the trail. They they made new trails and, yeah. and explored the world. Suddenly they made the youth of uh, cities understand that you actually you had the possibility to, to go to to the entrance of the highway there and study hiking and, and and go visit the world. It's a big step, you know, in uh, consciousness. Mm. Thank thank you for spending the time talking to me about your life and your philosophy and your art. It's been really interesting. Thank you very much, William, for having me here. This haunting song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Centre in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity.